On the Empire Podcast this week, we dive into a pool of poo and headhunters cry, Iceberg, right ahead, as Titanic 3D fills our faces. And then we cry, Peterberg, right ahead, as the Battleship director and his stars drop in for a pod chat. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and this is the sixth episode of the Empire Podcast, the movie podcast that can kill 99% of known germs dead. The 1% then wants revenge in this in the sequel. Six weeks have gone already. It's amazing how time flies when you're having regimented slots of weekly fun. Now, this week, I'm joined by some old faces, or old voices, starting with a movie journalist so geeky that when she boards a flight, the pilot doesn't send over a bottle of champagne, but a bottle of Romulan ale. Hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I'm actually teetotal, so uh, uh, obviously most I. of the pilots know me and they just send over something, you know. Something geeky you can sell on eBay. Yes. Later on. Exactly. Uh, next, we have a man who's so art house he speaks in subtitles. It's Phil DeSimlian. Bonjour. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> Someone quick to Babelfish. Um, then we have the exuberant and magnificent man mountain of hair and movie know how that is Ali Plum. Hello, Ali. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I didn't expect the, uh, the question back at me. That was hmm. a bit of a surprise. But I'm good, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, right, you lot have been getting in touch with us all week via email, which is podcast at empireonline.com, and via that newfangled tweet machine I keep reading so much about. Let's hear the best of what you've been saying. At Cringe Radio asks, why do some bad movies perform a lot better overseas than in the US? Examples, Pirates 4, Clash of the Titans, and Prince of Persia. I have some theories that I'd like to put forward for these particular bad movies. Please do. Um, uh, first of all, I think that... Uh, People in the US clearly realised that Clash of the Titans had no Titans in it and were turned off by the false (laughs) advertising. I I remember the picket lines. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas we were willing to give it a chance. Uh, Secondly, on a slightly more serious note, but not much more serious, Mm -hmm. um, maybe we were swayed by the British accents in all of those films. Mm. Possibly. Isn't there something Mm. to do also with the fact that, you know, obviously... uh, Overseas box office is becoming more and more huge. They're building cinemas in different countries now. They're really expanding worldwide in China, Russia, Germany, so forth. Like Germany didn't have any cinemas before, but you know what I mean. They're they're really really expanding, and so now most movies will take about sixty to seventy percent of their total box office mm. overseas. So that's what's happening, and I don't think necessarily that there's so much discernment going on mm. overseas at the moment in new markets that are just seeing these films for the first time. Yeah, I think Disney's been very hot on that. And uh, I think, for instance, Pirates in China was pretty huge. Mm -hmm. And Japan as well. For some reason, the Japanese really like Pirates. My other theory is that um, the people who do the subtitles improve the dialogue in some of these films. (laughs) I think they just go wild. Well, they couldn't make it worse. We haven't seen these subtitled versions, so we don't know. But presumably That's, you have as a subtitle I have seen them. Yeah. I have seen them, yes. Okay, fair enough. Marked improvements. Okay, well, we hope that answered your question, Cringe Radio. By the way, that's a fantastic Twitter handle. At uh, Ed Bauer, who was featured on last week's show, asks... And last week's question was really long and laborious, and he's outdone himself. The majority of films have happy, predictable endings. What is your favourite film which does not end in the conventional way, i.e., the main character dies or there is a big twist. Now, can I just say, first of all, this is a big one. Second of all, spoiler warning, obviously, because <laughs> we're going to go into spoiler territory here. Helen. Um, maybe before sunset for me. Oh, the bit where Ethan Hawke's face gets blown <laughs> off. The bit where Ethan Hawke's face melts. Um, yeah. into, into the sun, when he saves the sun. The, there's, a funny, there's a funny story about this. A critic that I know uh, went to the toilet during the third act of the film, which is always a bad <laughs> idea, and actually came back in the film and ended. Um, and as a result, um, thought it was thought it was dreadful and was appalled and, and voted for it to be given sort of a lower star rating than in fact it was. Okay. For the sake of spoilers, can you refresh your memory? Um, basically, the film ends with uh, Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke um, in her apartment, chatting, laughing, and listening to Nina Simone, mm-hmm. and doesn't 
tell you for sure, although I'm pretty clear what I think, whether or not he's going to stay or not. What do you think? Uh, he's totally going to stay. Oh, my God. Okay, fair enough. And uh, so who was a critic? Go on, you can tell us. We're amongst friends. Um, it was Colin Kennedy. Colin Kennedy, formerly editor formerly of this parish. Formerly editor of this parish. And he hates the film. Well, he didn't hate it, but he was he was voting that it should get no more than three stars on the basis that <laughs> the ending was clearly crap because it okay. just came out of nowhere. So that doesn't end in a conventional way because it doesn't tell us what happened. It doesn't have a resolution. Exactly. Okay, not because there's a twist or anything. Uh, Phil, what's your, what's your favourite? Mine would be, I don't know if it's a favourite because it's it's kind of just it's scared the bejesus out of me at the time and it's one of those films that just stays with you in a slightly dark place in your brain The Vanishing oh yeah the French-Belgian psycho horror Mm -hmm. slice of sheer weirdness and it's Mm. so dark um, that you just can't get it out of your mind and I know the Americans remade it it was remade in Hollywood by the same guy George Slazer exactly but with a much less dark ending which Mm. I think it was still pretty dark it was quite dark, but... Not as dark. No, no. I, I'm loath to say exactly kind of where the darkness comes because I think it's a film that people should go and find and watch straight away. Mm. Um, but yeah, probably that one. But that one or Butch Cassidy. I do love okay. Sucker for a Freeze Frame ending. Butch mm. Cassidy or Gallipoli. Or Hot Rod. Or Hot Rod, the classics. <laughs> the classic Freeze, freeze Frame ending of Hot Rod. Okay, Ali, do you have a favourite unconventional ending or main character dying or something? I do. I'm not sure whether it quite counts, but I'm going to go for Miller's Crossing. The way it ends, I don't know what I was expecting okay. from that movie generally. But Miller crossing something at, at yeah. some point, presumably. Doesn't quite happen. Doesn't happen. And yet, at the end, it kind of just ends. Not, you know, much like before sunset. But there is an ending where you go, well, nothing's quite resolved. I mean, a lot is, but certainly not for the main character. And for me, that's what makes that movie so rewatchable. It's interesting because we could obviously go over the old classics, the sixth senses of this world. But uh, for me, um, and again, spoiler warning, you may want to skip the next 30 to 40 seconds. uh, It's William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., uh, which is a fantastic uh, sort of cops and and drug runners thriller starring William Peterson and Willem Dafoe. And uh, it's about William Peterson hunting down Willem Dafoe's demented drug uh, dealer character. Uh, I was watching it for the first time. It's got an amazing car chase. It's got everything you you could want. And then about 10 minutes from the end of the movie, spoiler warning, uh, William Peterson gets his face blown off with a shotgun. And uh, his partner actually comes to the fore and uh, kills Willem Dafoe and saves the day. And you're just thinking, when I first saw it, I was like... that just that that just happened. <laughs> Has Grissom's face just been blown off? It wasn't Grissom at the time, but you know, it was it was it was a phenomenal moment for me. And it was just you know in a movie where anything can happen now. This is taking me into very very dark territory. Uh, so yes, that one. And again, I hope that answers your question, Ed Bauer, via email, Jenny Block. Real name, whose middle names must surely be from the, or I'm going to be hugely disappointed. She asks, what film that most people adore do you really dislike or not get, as the case may be? I have an entire series. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, d- I don't get the obsession with and love of Bond. Uh, now, this obviously does not represent... This does not represent Empire's official uh, viewpoint. Uh, I must emphasise that. Uh, I have liked, uh, you know, I liked the Casino Royale... Daniel Craig one a little bit um, I just I don't get Chris is actually shaking with anger now and, and looking at me with his scary eyes um, but I just don't I've never got it um, okay. I, you know leaving aside even the obvious, obvious feminist problems with it I don't get it what obvious, obvious feminist, feminist problems, problems. <laughs> well, apart from the obvious ones <laughs> he treats women well he shows them a good time sees them at the door it's kills them occasionally some of them die as a result of sleeping with James Bond uh-huh. but not 
as a result of anything they got from James Bond. And I think that's that very important. That we know of. That's a distinction, yes. That we 30, know of. 30 years later. You get me gonorrhea, you bastard. Anyway, moving on. Why? Okay, yeah. And nothing mm. has swayed you? What about Daniel it Craig? It just seems like the same film over and over and over again. Um, Daniel yes. Craig is part of a boom and bust cycle that happens over and over and over again. I quite like most of the actors who have played James Bond. I quite, you know, enjoy them as Bond, enjoy them in other things. I hate the character and I don't get the adulation. I don't get why, you know, every tabloid newspaper in, in the country spends a year talking about casting rumours for these films. I don't get it. There are so many better films, better franchises out there. We just need to take a breath and a step back, I think. That's my what about, what about personal the theme lonely view. Come on. Uh, we've been carrying uh, no, the, the theme tunes I'll give you okay. the theme tunes are generally karaoke favourites yeah. sure and the pre- fantastic pre-credit sequences eh May. eh come on oh come on everybody else has been doing better in recent years really yes really Born. yeah okay Bourne hasn't been doing better ones than, than Bond. Better credit Not sequences than Bond. Not pre-credit sequences. Okay, but I meant, I, I meant, I meant credit sequences. Okay. By the way, sorry. The you know the bits where like you know women's nipples turns into turned into guns and stuff, which made, made a big impact to me as a as a young boy growing Clearly, up in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And David Lynch, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, precisely. Uh, yeah, what about those those amazing things or the fantastic production design I don't know. or I just the smooth feel like charisma of Desmond Llewellyn? I don't feel like we should watch a film because the credit sequence is very good. I don't think that should be a big reason. Okay. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn, I will give you. Yeah. He okay. would be a reason. But Gadgets sadly, and, no longer and guns with us. and girls. Gadgets well, don't maybe, care. Yeah. Um, yeah. Guns don't care. Double take girls pigeon. don't care. Guys, come on, please don't leave me hanging here. Ali, Phil, defend Bond's honour. Sometimes you don't have to have an argument when you know you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fantastic. I think that's that's the final word of that one, Helen. <laughs> You've lost. And after that huge talking point, it's time to move on because it's time for a jingle. Um, we always ask you guys to compose jingles for us. Most of you don't take up the challenge, but this person has, and he's now our, our regular jingle composer. At least I hope he's a He might be a she. You never know. It's a, his or her name is Microfarad Melody Eel. And they were inspired by a slip of the tongue in last week's show. And they came up with this theme tune for next summer's biggest blockbuster, Battle sheep, endure. Battle sheep. 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 Amazing. That was the greatest one yet. Yeah. No question. This year we're obviously uh, going to have a film based around a board game. I wonder if we could ever Hollywood would ever do a film based around a jingle because they should. Battleship. I want to see it in cinemas now. Summer two thousand and thirteen slash fourteen, probably two thousand and thirteen. Frankly, we don't need that much time to knock up a script for a film called <laughs> Battleship. But yeah, please Hollywood, if you're listening, and I know you are, then please, please make that film. Uh, if you think you can do better than Microfarad Melody Eel, um, and or if you're worried that you might actually do worse, then why not try out your jingle composing skills? Now that's skills with a said, and fire them along to us at podcast at empireonline.com. Okay. Time for movie news. That's news with a said. Uh, Helen, what have you got for us this week? Well, I have the uh, momentous, the important, the possibly horrific or possibly delightful news <laughs> that Ashton Kutcher is set to play Steve Jobs in a biopic of the latter's life. Really? Yes, Wowzers. really. Okay. Um, filming apparently starts in May. Uh, Joshua Michael Stern, who last directed Swing Vote, uh, is the man behind the camera. That's quite a charming little film. 
if you've ever seen yeah, it. Yes, so it's it's a nice little film and an interesting one. So one, you know, you can hope for the best here, I think. Okay. Um, and it'll be competing with another biopic based on his official biography. So it's yet to, we're yet to see, you know, how that works out and which one goes ahead and so on. But this one looks to have got the jump. So uh, we might be seeing it pretty soon. Or indeed the, the jumper. The sort or of turtle neck jumper. But this jumper. is, if I'm correct in thinking, this is the early life of Steve Jobs. Yes, this um, is his rise from kind of hippie to tech yeah, entrepreneur. Absolutely. So it's a hippie side of it. So that might explain why Ashton Kutcher might be a decent choice. This isn't mm. sort of shaven headed, uh, glass rimmed glasses. Steve Jobs and another thing, Steve Jobs. Yeah, no, it's before it's the not that guy. Thing. Are we expecting a kind of social social networky type of uh, treatment for this? I would like to hope so, yes. I don't know. I think this could be interesting. I mean, Ashton Kutcher actually looks a fair bit like the young Steve Jobs. He does. There's a picture of Steve Jobs as a, yeah. as a young man. Uh, it might be Ashton Kutcher from Two and a Half Men, actually, but they do look very <laughs> much alike. They do look alike. Um, I reckon, I mean, if you think back to that 70s show, we all, we all used to like Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> so, you know, I think there could be some there could be some mileage here for reminding us yeah. that we used to like him and, uh, you know, and, and actually being good. He is a very talented comedic actor, to give him his due. Uh, and he was very good in that uh, spread movie that came out a couple of years ago. I don't know if anyone saw that, where he played a, a male gigolo type person. Mm. Uh, yeah, very, very good in that film. So, yes, let's give this uh, this one some hope. Uh, Ali, what's your story then? My story is the new Woody Allen trailer for his Italian romp to Rome with love. Trailer. Trailer, yes. Trailer. This podcast, it's all verbal. So... Uh, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe You're going to read out the trailer? I'm going to read out the script for the trailer. Okay, good. <laughs> Here it comes. Okay. Uh, it's got a variety of people, a couple of Woody Allen old hands, including Woody Allen, who's uh, having his first <laughs> uh, comeback since Scoop. We haven't seen him on screen for a long time. And okay. I must say, you know, I love him a lot. I'm a big, big fan. He's showing his age. He is, yeah. Lots of respect to the guy, but I wonder whether this may be his last... It's one song. Yeah, on-screen yeah. appearance. Anyway, he plays a uh, American tourist who thinks he's very clever, surprise, surprise, and is slightly su- neurotic, surprise, surprise, and he comes to Rome to meet his daughter's husband-to-be, but his family, this husband-to-be, is totally bonkers, and because of this, you get a variety of, you know, one-liners from Woody, describes family as a total bunch of raving loonies. Then we've got Penelope Cruz, who appears again after her previous appearance in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Mm -hmm. Uh, She plays a prostitute who throws herself at famous people, from what we can find out. And we've also got Jesse Eisenberg, as you say, uh, playing Jesse Eisenberg. He (laughs) nails that role. Um, No, not really. There's another character name, but it is essentially Jesse Eisenberg, who's going out with a girl who's played by Greta Gerwig, Mm -hmm. and who is kind of introduced to Greta Gerwig's character's friend, played by Ellen Page. She's meant to be some kind of sexual, salubrious, super sexy person. And there's a love triangle that emerges from that. Also, you've got Alec Baldwin, who plays Jesse Osmond's character's dad. And on top of all that, you've got Roberto Benigni. Oh, Jesus God. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, life it's is, bad. Oh, no, I it like is, life. Life is beautiful. beautiful. Oh, God. Awful. I know awful. I shouldn't. Awful. I awful. Now, if you understood any of that, or even most of that, or some of that, or a tiny bit of that, you've done better than most of the internet, because (laughs) the trailer doesn't really work as a trailer. It's just a mishmash of bits and bobs and one-liners and quips, and eventually you walk out going, or step away from it going, that's a Woody Allen movie. It's got two Woody Allens, Jesse and Woody, and there's some accordion music, and that's it. Yeah. I'll be honest, you had me at Alec Baldwin. Mm, Understandable. You also had me at Alec Baldwin. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm trying to work out those issues. Um, okay, thanks, Ali. So, bad trailer, but we hope it's going to be a good film because, if I remember correctly, the trailer from Midnight in Paris wasn't that hot. Mm. 
but the film was pretty good. I mean, Woody Allen isn't famed for his great trailers, but um, he did pull in 148 million with Midnight in Paris, won an Oscar for it. This is another upper middle class Americans abroad movie. Is he going to pitch up in Croydon next? Where's he going to? Where's he going to do? Where's Where's the next next stop of the the Woody Allen European tour? I really hope it's Copenhagen uh, because they're really <laughs> frosty and grumpy, so that could work out. But I honestly don't know. Hang yeah. on, hang on. We can we can plot this. He went from London to Barcelona to mm-hmm. Paris to Rome to Rome so he could stay in Italy and do Venice he's all over the shop he's like Jason Bourne in the Bourne film as if you're, you know, he's trying to stop people getting a, you know, tracking his movements well, you know he can't go to Greece because they're too poor now and he kind of deals with upper middle class concerns mm. um, Vienna I'm just grateful that this isn't a sequel to that terrible movie from two years ago from Powers from Paris, from Paris <laughs> with love, uh, which sees battleship, battleship, which sees uh, John Volta and Jonathan Rhys Meyers um, killing a variety of ethnic groups across Paris, and it's yes. absolutely dreadful. It is very, very bad film. Uh, so yeah, that's hopefully this is not a remake of that, or indeed a sequel. Uh, thanks, Ali. And last but not least, Phil, what have you got for this this week? No doubt, uh, news of a re-release yeah. of a Russian classic with even more symbolism. <laughs> what yes, is it? they've just archaeologists have just uncovered another layer of subtext in Andrey Rublev. <laughs> 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 use hot news just use. in oh my god the blogosphere uh, no um, <laughs> that, was, that was very thanks sad. a lot Phil moving on uh, shifting quickly on um, what I've got this week is there's uh, news of a sequel which oh, kind of took me by surprise although I suppose when you think about it not that surprising The Woman in Black we've gone in our droves to watch the film finally it's come to the screen after you know really nailing it on, on stage in the West End for a lot of years people love the book People love the film, and it's done great business, um, which is fantastic for Hammer, um, their first kind of British horror um, for a very long time. The sequel, though, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's set 40 years forward in time from the Edwardian setting. Eel Marsh House is revisited again. That's, a, you know, obviously a pre-designed location. It was fantastic, I thought, in the film. The production design was absolutely dazzling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it scared the bejesus out of me. I'm quite a wuss when it comes to horror films. Mm-hmm. So but, part of me thinks great, fantastic. Part of me at the same time thinks is a whiff of cash in. Well, yes, I mean, the, it's called The Woman in Black, Angels of Death. Angels of Death. Angels of Death. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I've got some faith in Hammer with this mm. one. I mean, they did very well in the first film, but it's important to note that James Watkins, the director, isn't returning, as far as we know. Jane Goldman, who wrote the script for The Woman in no. Black isn't returning definitely she's been replaced by someone called John Croker John Croker mm-hmm. okay and because I said 40 years later which puts it into what which World War II which is kind of World War II time yeah. World War II time 19, okay. 1940s could be something interesting now. you never know uh, mm. Daniel Radcliffe won't be making a reappearance mm. so maybe I'll get someone with a similar prestige yeah possibly. it's interesting there's a I don't know if you've read this there's a um, Sarah Walters novel The Little Stranger which is set in the same time sort of post Second World War ghost story set in a big country house which I thought would be really ripe for a screen adaptation. It's a fantastic book. And this kind of feels like it's in the same sort of territory, maybe feeding into kind of sort of 1940s wartime angst um, and suffering. And uh, I don't know, I think it depends on, you know, who they bring on board as a director, potentially. I think, you know, there's a big audience. People love the thing. And I guess the other thing it has going for it is that the world that the film that um, James Watkins created in the first film is almost kind of timeless. It's a very much, you know, it's on an archipelago. Mm. Uh, Eel Marsh House and uh, it wouldn't be too difficult to see them creating a new story kind of in that setting um, untouched by the kind of advances in time Absolutely One thing that's interesting though is that and this may uh, remove that whiff of cash in is that Susan Hill apparently has been working on this story for quite a while now 
and has already now just gone, oh yeah, well, here it is, and we've been working on it, and it's actually to a point now where I think it's ready to move forward. So, if she's working on it, then surely it's going to be okay, don't we think? Uh, yeah, I would I would say that that's a very, you know, that's a solid guarantor of, of a degree of quality, definitely. I mean, she's not going to put a name to, to, to anything. Um, and like you say, Hammer, you know, Hammer did a great job with the first film, so I, I'm I'm quietly confident, but um, I guess it remains to be seen who they're going to bring on board and, and where the casting goes. So this could be a franchise. It could be a Hammer esque franchise. So we could see Woman in Black eighty nineteen seventy two at some point down the line, or <laughs> Dealing a woman with the, sub, in, yeah. the subprime mortgage absolutely catastrophe. She triggers it all. Yeah, or maybe a future out. Woman in Black. Yeah, the, the Cyborg in Black or something like that. Who knows? We could go she down. She could join that. the Expendables. She could join the Expendables. Uh, she'd be unstoppable. Uh, okay, now Battleship, the sci-fi action film based on the Hasbro board game, and yes, you did hear that correctly, is out on Wednesday, April 11th. Next Wednesday, in fact. Recently, the movie's director, Peter Berg, who directed the likes of Hancock and The Kingdom and Friday Night Lights, and personal favourite, The Empire Office, Welcome to the Jungle, popped into the pod booth for a chat, and he brought with him his stars, Brooklyn Decker and Taylor Kitsch of Jarsoom. Phil and Helen asked the questions, and that is Questions with the Said. Go ahead. I was going to ask, where's the British Navy in this film, Peter? I will say that I, I just read uh, a new book called Killing the Bismarck, which is about the, um, the, the British, the actual sinking of the Bismarck, and uh, all, of, all of the intensity and the drama and the loss of lives that went around that, which I, I was sort of aware of, but I highly recommend anybody from England that hasn't read that book, read the book Killing the Bismarck because those were some badass sailors. And Winston Churchill is one of my heroes. He was a super badass. And I would love to do a film about the killing of the Bismarck. And there's a little bit of sort of World War II link in here with, you know, the Missouri and yes. everything, right? Yeah, we, we had, um, not only do we have the Missouri, which is really one of the most famous naval warships in history, which is what uh, Japan surrendered uh, World War II to the United States and to the British in Tokyo Harbor, but we had uh, actual veterans, some 90-year-old men who served on the Missouri and served in World War II, and that was pretty awesome. Um, and how about you two? I mean, when somebody said that they were making a film based on Battleship, what was your initial reaction? Uh, we were actually in Austin, Texas on my boat, and uh, we were, <laughs> ironically, uh, and I was just, it was literally just making conversation on the boat, and and we were, I was like, what are you up to next? And it wasn't fishing, wasn't like, hey, can you cast me in something? Or It was, and he just, a matter of fact, he said, I'm doing Battleship. And, and so then, I said, so are you. I said, we're doing Battleship. <laughs> yeah. He said, what are you doing next? I said, we're doing Battleship. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. And you were like... Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's more of an intrigue thing too, you know, like anyone else when you when you say that. So, um, and then we just you know pick each other's brains for God knows how long. I guess the obvious question is which film director are you can invite invite on your boat next? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Oliver was on there last. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's kind of a courting thing that I do apparently. Kind of instead of a casting couch, a casting yeah. Boat. Come on over. Come to <laughs> come to Austin, Texas. Taylor's idea of fun is taking you on his boat, which is really fast, and he and he puts you on uh, a tube and yeah. straps you to it, and then he screams prison rules at the yeah, top of his lungs. Literally, this is what we do. And just starts plying as fast as that boat will go. He just starts making. You know, donuts. Thirty-five to forty miles an hour will tow you on an inner tube. And if you say prison rules, it basically means I ha can can do anything to get you off that boat, <laughs> which is, you know, could be you know breaking your ribs basically on these falls. And he's got giant speakers. They're just cranking ACDC, AC and he's screaming prison rules at the top of his lungs, <laughs> and it's 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 
Just so, an experience. So after that, basically making an action movie is pretty much a you know. A step oh, it's down. Yeah, yeah, nothing. Yeah, nothing. Whatever. And how about you, Brooklyn? Did you have to go through this baptism of fire as well? I my process was a little bit different. I had. Um, it's funny because this was all very secretive when I when I first heard about it, and the script wasn't released. And I had seen a few scenes between Sam and Hopper, and I auditioned for this probably four times. And the oh. fifth time, I actually went in and read for Pete, and he told me if I wanted the part that I had to make snot bubbles come out of my nose that he wanted to see. <laughs> he wanted to see tears and he wanted to see snot bubbles. So we made it happen eventually. And uh, the next week he called and said, all right, you can come on, come on board. That's yeah. not something they teach you at drama school, I imagine. No, that was, well, mm. it was funny because I, I, I go yeah. into audition and you know, all I had seen was the stuff between Sam and Hopper. So he said, did you know there were aliens in this movie? And I said, I, I had no idea actually. And he brought out these little guys and he's like, you know, it was like a 10 inch model. And he said, these are going to be seven feet tall and I want you to be terrified and I want to see snot coming out of your nose. So, somehow it happened. Wow. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it actually is the hardest acting that, that I know of. I mean, we ask these guys to stare at little dots on green screens and, and scream and be legitimately terrified. Fans and, going on with guys on their phone. Yeah, while I mean, you're while you're doing a the, thing. Yeah, the problem is, you know, obviously with with uh, iPhones on the set is everybody, all the crew members who used to kind of feign interest in what we're doing, and at least you know because they had <laughs> nothing else to do, they're all now just either on the phone, just talking to their wives, uh, with no with no regard for us at all, or they're just you know texting wildly, or they're watching porn, and and we're trying to you know these guys life or death situations, the know, highest stakes possible trying to that fight you've never <laughs> felt before in your life. I mean, it, the world's it, ending action, and somebody's playing Angry Birds. Yeah, yeah exactly. totally. Yeah. But they don't teach that, you know, at Yale Drama School. Um, uh, um, mm. You know, Meryl Streep never had to take a course in green screen <laughs> acting, and it's it's really hard. And you know, I, I learned from when I when I did Hancock, Will Smith is one of the best at it. And you know, Will would talk about how hard it is and how you just have to suck it up and really sell it. And these guys did a great job. Mm. And so all the the ordeal that. I particularly put Brooklyn through was just to see whether she, <laughs> you know, had the appetite because once you get down and you're in the middle of, you know, uh, in the open ocean, Hawaii, or in our case, up in the mountains, if she couldn't get to it emotionally and literally fake it that intensely, we were going to be in trouble. So she, she definitely earned it. There's, there seems to be quite a lot of violence going around here. That seems to be the theme so far. <laughs> we like yeah. violence. Yeah. <laughs> We're all attracted to violence. The emo I, the, I was joking, Sam. So attracted to the the emotion in yeah. violence, and it seems like every time I do a film, it's either about you know a, a violent sport, mm. um, it's about soldiers, it's about police. I, I'm I'm personally attracted to anybody who's willing to kind of make you know put put themselves in violent situations and make those sacrifices. So, and these two are both psychologically quite violent. So. <laughs> Oh, what's the Particularly Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn. I like violence. Yeah. Is that okay. weird? I don't think that's weird. That's normal. Yeah, I think in, in, secretly, I think everyone kind of in in movie terms at least. Uh, yeah, I think well, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, not strangling in, people yeah. in the streets or anything. This is a comfort yeah. food. Yeah. Right. Yeah, none of that. Maybe a little bit of that. Mm. Yeah. Did you sort of approach the idea of making a film from a board game? Did that take quite a lot of time and, and iteration to Germany? I know your first your first draft of the script that you that you, that mm -hmm. you saw from the two writers mm -hmm. you kind of recorded from a little bit I, I kind of what? well sort of just had you know you weren't happy with perhaps the, the initial kernel of the story um, 
you know, I've I've been trying to do a film about the Navy for a long time. My dad was an amateur Navy historian. When I was a kid, he used to drag me to every Navy museum in the world, and you know, he, I, he really did make me study um, the the particularly World War Two, the um, what, what happened in the Atlantic between the, the Germans and the British, and the, you know, the I, I don't know how much history everybody you know in in, in England knows about. Um, the, the courage of the English mm. sailors and the, the, the shipping convoys that were constantly being attacked by the German wolf packs, the submarines, and it was it was really brave, dangerous, very dramatic stuff. And I studied that, and I studied the um, the war in the Pacific between the American and the Japanese, and that was you know equally violent and horrific, and um, you know just just very dramatic stuff. So I'd always wanted to do a Navy film. Uh, they're they're hard to do and they're very expensive. So the idea of Battleship made sense because the, the studios like it because it's a you know there's a commercial tie-in and you know Transformers did you know quite well and Pirates of the Caribbean did quite well and so they liked that um, so I said Battleship and they said sure and then I realized well we actually had to go and make up a story mm. and you know the idea of, of of the game doesn't lend itself to you know a natural interpretation of film but if you use your imagination and you think about five ships against five ships and just start imagining you know who's in those ships what are they doing why are they mad at each other and you know why and how are they fighting it actually became uh, one of the most creatively challenging experiences I've ever had um, you know it was taking nothing and turning it into a, a story and um, that you know to me was a uh, <coughs> excuse me a complicated process it was hard to get it right originally you know right out of the gate but I'm very happy with where it ended up and it really has been one of the best creative experiences of my life yeah I really like the nod to the game in the sense of mm -hmm. the, the sort of the peg shaped missiles that ordinance ordinance yes, yes. Well, it was fun you know er, people have often said like you know okay well battleship but what, what, it's a preposterous idea for you know a movie it's like the most simple game of two people are playing I say b2 you say miss you say e5 I say miss I say j7 you say hit right mm -hmm. well, it seems, well the second you say hit something happens where i i instinctively now want to kill you <laughs> as quickly and violently and mercilessly no negotiation no, no you know there's no backpedaling i'm going to try and kill you as quickly as i can and now you're desperate to find me and kill me before mm. i that's actually good kind of dna for a movie so that that was helpful mm. there's a, the scene where you actually kind of incorporate the, the format of the game yes. into the movie was that something that that you that you kind of wanted to do as part of the Hasbro agreement or was it something that you felt I mean you know there was there was no there was absolutely no mandate from Hasbro to do anything they just wanted the name Battleship um, I, I was not um, completely oblivious oblivious to some of the sarcasm that came out in the early media surrounding uh, you know me trying to do Battleship uh, Stephen Colbert in particular did a very funny sketch where he he, he mocked us. In, in, very aggressively and you know it was basically kind of saying how, how in the world could anybody ever do this so I took pride in 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 basically it was me my desire to prove Stephen Colbert wrong okay before we wrap up the week with the reviews it's competition time last week we offered five lucky peeps a chance to win Monty Python and the Holy Grail on that their blu-ray format now to do so all they had to do was answer this question Monty Python and the Holy Grail formed the basis for which stage musical? Phil. Eric Carter's Spamalot. Correct. <laughs> I like to push the Pramalot. <laughs> Phil was caught snapping there. Uh, congratulations to Josh Youngman, Jimmy Brown, Peter Redshaw, 
Michael Dolby. Oh, there's a there's a name for a movie podcast. And Rob Dolby. Andrews. Uh, well done to those guys. Um, you have a copy of Monty Python and the Holy Grail on Blu-ray ringing its way towards you at some point. Uh, this week we'll offer you the chance to win one of three, count them, three Dreamhouse Blu-rays to enter answer the following ridiculously easy question. Dreamhouse star Daniel Craig supports which football team? Oxford United. It's not Oxford United, I said football team. Uh, there you go. Answers to podcast at empireonline.com. I will announce the winners on next week's show. By the way, if you have won a previous competition but you haven't yet received your prize, do give it time. They'll be winging away to you shortly. And that is a pinky promise. And yes, that is promise with a said. Right, on to the movie reviews now. This week's big release, arguably, is a film that first came out 15 years ago and which was until this director surfaced from the depths of the ocean and made another film the biggest movie of all time. It's a tale of two star-crossed lovers, an unsinkable ship, and a big mother of an iceberg that simply doesn't know the meaning of the word unsinkable, or indeed any words, because frankly, it's an iceberg. It is, of course, Titanic, now in glorious Cleopatra-style 3D, and by Cleopatra I mean the group that were coming at you. Uh, Phil, what did you think? Well, let's talk about the 3D, first of all. Um, seems an obvious place to start. And it does, doesn't it? I, well, the thing that was kind of surprising about it was when Avatar came, James Cameron talked a lot about how 3D needed to be part of the filmmaking process from the get-go from the uh, you know almost from the writing process it needed to be built into uh, into the, into the movie um, and yet here he is kind of retrofitting his own film uh, but he I think the difference between this and say an Alice in Wonderland or a Clash of the Titans is that he spent a long time on it and that really comes across on the screen he spent I think like 20 million dollars mm. on um, refitting it with three in stereo and and it looks fantastic but I guess the thing that surprised me was that it's not it's not the kind of you know there's no iceberg leaping out of the screen propeller guy doesn't kind of bulge through the proscenium at you or anything like that it's very subtle it's not gimmicky 3d it's not gimmicky 3d no it's 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 beautifully sort of built into the story and and below decks especially with the grand staircase and the kind of the upper class kind of ornate world that he's created the physicality of the film you know the fact they actually built this ship 800 feet of it in baja mexico that's really paid off that decision i can't think of a film since Titanic that's felt as physical and it's aged so well as a result you know it really it feels like something it's not all CG um, okay but what about uh, what about the CG elements because I remember watching Titanic back in 1997 and even then well it might be 1998 actually but, uh, they even then thinking some of the CG's not quite what it should be the figures walking across the, the CG yeah. ship for example and I've read it he hasn't really he hasn't pulled the George Lucas here he hasn't gone back and and changed that and amped up the CG in any way. No, John Landau, who I spoke to um, last week, was was adamant that they were never going to do that. They were never going to do what he called a, a Where's Wally, where you had spent the, the the movie looking for stuff they've changed. Um, and I think they, you know, they probably can see that. I mean, obviously they're cutting edge with Avatar technology, and this was early early motion capture, and it shows in that particular. Um, panoramic sweep back over the ship yeah. it's still impressive but you can really tell I mean like you say you can see these little kind of slightly robotic figures moving around. So we're 15 years on now uh, I remember when this film hit I had friends who were working in a cinema in York, the Odeon in York actually and I just remember watching this film play and play and play for months and I would go to meet my friends every night after work and the the main cinema in the, in the Odeon in York would just open every night at 10.30 and hundreds of people would come flooding down the stairs. People of all ages who'd never been to the cinema for a long, long time, hadn't, you know, hadn't had really any interest in film. And Titanic triggered something. It's very fashionable to diss this movie, but it really tapped into something back in 1997 slash 1998. Does it still do that? I think, actually, 
just to butt in for a minute, I think it really does. And I think what's interesting is if you if you catch a bit of Titanic on TV at night, it's very easy to pick up on the the cheesiness of some of the lines and the, and the very broad brushstrokes of some of the story kind of moments in in the film. If you're watching it all of a piece on a huge screen, it absolutely does. Um, if you'll forgive the verb, immerse you in the world again. And you do you do get completely caught up in it. And I think that's the, the kind of power of... This is a very much a big screen movie. And if you're watching it at home, you're only seeing it at like 50%, I think. Okay, interesting. The characters yeah, I go along with that. And, yeah. The characters do well. The love story, the sweeping yeah. love story between Jack and Rose. and Yeah, I reviewed it for the, mag- for the magazine in 3D and I've given it four stars and I guess I'm going to probably take some flack for that because a lot of people would say, oh, it's a cast iron five-star masterpiece. Mm. A lot of people probably, you know, don't like it as well. There's, well there at least pe- there's the- people out there that don't like it. I think there was one comment on our message board today on uh, that said that, uh, how did you give this film four stars? It's the worst film ever made. <laughs> how to, is this Next the worst? to Avatar, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> if you're listening sir then thank you for that comment but there is this movie has also engendered a lot of hate as well over the yeah i don't years. quite i don't quite get that really it's a, it's a very at the very least it's quite it's a very benign you know loving kind of homage to the selznick era epics and yeah. and, I, and and i think it does have a timeless quality so seeing it back on the big screen leaving aside the cg and even the 3d it's just like wow this is a real cinematic landmark the heft as you say the heft and physicality of that last 45 minutes is just beyond it's it's extraordinary and I you know I do think you know the Billy Zane character is a bit a bit risible at times a little bit (laughs) he's meant to be he's meant to be well yes but I mean yeah okay I was just going to say I mean you're as like have angels fly out of your arse, to quote the film itself, (laughs) as get everyone to agree on the merits of a popular movie yeah so you know What's Haters going to hate. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of James Cameron, so I think, by all means, he's one of the few directors, if not the only director, he can play on a canvas this big and make it work. And so, yeah, by all means, I applaud it. I, I can't wait to see it again. Was Titanic, incidentally, the film on which people wore the crew T-shirt that said, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you? <laughs> There's some fantastic remember. Cameron crew T-shirts over the years. Was that one, was it? Was Titanic not You Can't Scare Me, I've Worked With James Cameron? It might have been. Or was it, uh, no, the abyss was Life's Abyss, Then You Dive. That was, yeah. So there, there, there are a few of them over the years. Uh, one of the best James Cameron quotes uh, I've ever heard, I think he was describing True Lies, and someone said to him once, uh, don't you think less is more? He went, no, 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 no. More is more. And I think that just sums up James Cameron's worldview so perfectly. Uh, Okay, Uh, next up we have the blackly comedic Norwegian thriller Headhunters, which is about an art thief who gets in way over his head in more ways than one, as we'll come to that in a second, uh, when he tangles with an unstoppable killer played by Game of Thrones' Nikolai Koster-Waldau. Helen, you saw this and liked it, I believe. I did very much. It's it's a really interesting mix of things because... You know, going into it, you, you assume it's going to be a girl with the dragon tattoo esque, quite serious Scandi thriller, um, as are popular at the moment, and it's it kind of is. I mean, it keeps up the tension, it keeps up the pace, it keeps up the the really high stakes the whole way through the film, but it's also a really black comedy, a black, black, pitch black comedy, mm. um, because the our sort of antihero goes to such insane lengths as the story goes on to. You know, stay alive. Well, stay alive, essentially. Um, But uh, but also just that you know his plans are just uh, kind of insane to begin with. So full marks to Axel Henney for for playing him brilliantly. And then obviously uh, Nikolai Kostyarov is uh, the the very kind of controlled, uh, kind of perfect antagonist to him. Mm. So he's basically meant to 
intimidate uh, Axel's character, Roger, just by existing. He's meant to give him a, an inferiority complex, and he does that brilliantly, basically by being Nikolai Koster-Waldau. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw this film as well. I, I, I loved it. It's one of my favourites of the year so far. Uh, things I loved about it, uh, it's got, the, like I said, this incredible, uh, really dark sense of humour, mm. and it plunges our hero our Norwegian hero whose name and I've never understood this is Roger Brown <laughs> which is not a very Norwegian name but it plunges him into all sorts of hell there is a there is a moment which is going to become a cult classic I think where he has mm. to avoid uh, the attentions of, a, of a, an assassin by plunging frankly into a cesspit um, which is just amazing then there's a there's an incredible fight scene afterwards involving uh, something with four legs and it just is this incredible nightmarish dream logic that just yes. keeps piling up and piling up and it's it's really really funny and it's also very very thrilling there's some there's moments in here that are pure Hitchcock and I, I absolutely adored it um, there's a couple of things about this film as well uh, Axel Henney is great in it uh, he has hair for the first half of the movie at which point he looks like Christopher Walken in A Few to a Kill I was actually going to say he looks like uh, one of the Twilight family he looks, you like, think he looks like a Twilight family Twilight. Okay. He, that, he has the exact same hair well he has the exact same hair as, as Walken in A Few to a Kill but when he shaves his hair Funny enough, he looks like Bubble from Big Brother a few years ago, which is I the, like the weirdest Gidhue. transformation. Well, that's just because he's bald and you just associate no. bald people with Duncan Goodhue, isn't it? No, that's it? not true. No. <laughs> Facially, he looks exactly like Bubble. That's not a compliment, I know, but he is a very handsome man in real life. He is apparently the Norwegian Tom Cruise. So there's that. And then uh, the, the lady who plays his wife, uh, Sineva Lund, who's this gorgeous, six-foot-tall, statuesque, ice-blonde, real Hitchcockian blonde, was a movie critic before she made this movie which frankly puts us all to shame we may have to raise our game we may have to raise our game I'm not six foot tall nor am I a statuesque blonde but yeah she's really, she's really really very good in this and this is a, as indeed most Scandinavian properties are these days up for an American remake yes Mark Wahlberg is already planning it it's already in the works I mean his his record with remakes is actually pretty good if you think about it Contraband was really decent that was a remake of the Icelandic uh, thriller uh, Reykjavik Rotterdam and of course he also appeared in The Departed so if it's yep. going to be in anybody's hands Mark Wahlberg probably isn't a bad pair of hands he can also do comedy as well as action he can if indeed he's the guy who's going to start it because he might just produce he might just produce yeah. true. I could see Tony Gilroy maybe getting behind the camera on it yeah he, I mean Michael Clayton's a film I really love it doesn't have this sort of really really subversive dark humour but it's got a similar kind of you know when it comes to the, the thriller mm. genre oh, we should probably point out this is based on the book by Yonesbo yes yeah. good point the guy who wrote the Harry Hole books or as I was uh, my pronunciation of that was correct the other week by Norwegian it's apparently Harry Hole so I didn't know I didn't know I thought it was Joe Nesbo and I was embarrassing myself on a, on a regular basis there. Uh, okay, so that is Headhunters. It's if funny, I was just going to just, before we moved on, just to say that it reminded me a little bit of having some of the shared DNA with some of the 80s, 70s, 80s US thrillers, the Alan Pacula. Oh, the sort of stuff. the paranoid yeah, I could see, Three Days of the Condor. Yeah, that's, that's Harrison sort of Ford in a film like this in the 80s. You know, yeah, it's got much more of a sense of humour, though. It definitely does have that, that's true, and that's a Scandinavian thing. But it's just interesting that maybe it's made by somebody that perhaps grew up watching some of those films and now it's going back to America so there's kind of almost like a cultural osmosis at work I'd love to see the, the humour because this film is made by a sense of humour I think Fantastic. so hopefully that'll be preserved indeed so that is Headhunters if you can find it do go and see it we gave it four stars in the magazine so that is a definite recommendation one of the year's best so far now the third wide release this week is The Cold Light of Day which stars the new Superman Henry Cavill and uh, Bruce Willis and Sigourney Weaver has got a good cast and a Bourne-esque premise as Cavill's ordinary Joe finds out his dad was in the CIA but is it any good? well 
we can't tell you because it didn't screen to press. Now, that's usually not a good sign, but you never know. You never know. It's up to you. At least we're telling you that it's out there. Um, also, honourable mentions this week go to the reissue of the classic Renoir film, uh, Le Grand Delusion, which is in key cities. I don't know what key what cities is a key are. City? Exactly. Yeah. Cities big enough to support an art house cinema, I believe. I imagine key cities are obviously Manchester, Liverpool. I don't know. Right into this. If you live in a city that you think should be a key city but isn't and you're not getting the Grand Delusion, then please write in and tell us. Maybe we can lobby the people who make these decisions and have your city dubbed a key city. Maybe it's something to do with the number of cathedrals you have. Who knows? Now, Mike Newell, not the former Blackburn Rovers and Everton striker, but the film director, the guy who made Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, for weddings and funeral and so on and so forth, uh, he is championing the Grand Illusion, and quite rightly so. In the current issue of Empire, which is available in all good news agents right now, priced just £3.99, it is a bargain, one of our best in years. And he'll be on the podcast next week doing much the same thing. Now, Sean Penn is also good value in This Must Be The Place, which again is getting a limited release around the UK. Sorry, non-key cities, but you're not going to see Sean Penn in a goth fright week. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related pod fun, where we'll be talking to Cabin in the Woods director Drew Goddard. We'll also be having a spoiler-filled separate podcast special released on the same day. So if you see Cabin in the Woods and your mind is blown by it and you want to discuss all the different things that happen in the last third of the movie, then you know download that podcast because it will give you lots of answers. And we'll also have the aforementioned Mike Newell. Until then, it is pod by from Helen Toodaloo it is pod by from Ali pod by <laughs> and it's pod by from Phil au revoir oh, Phil always with the subtitles uh, and of course it's pod by from me pod by <laughs>